It's great to be together. It's good to kick off a new ministry year. So thankful uh, to see so many of your faces. I know and I hope that you've had a, a great summer, but we're excited to be diving back into the Word of God together to kick off a new ministry year in the book of Genesis. So if you have your Bibles, take them and open them up. It's the easiest book of the Bible to find. It's right there at the beginning. And we're going to simply look at two verses today. You might be wondering how long it's going to take us to get to the book of Genesis. It's going to take some time, but it's going to be so worth our time. Well, there was uh, news that shocked the world. I'm sure you heard of it. A Britney Spears no longer believes in God. Oh, you thought I was talking about the Queen. The Christian Post recorded last week or wrote last week that Britney Spears came out and said she no longer believes in God, as if you cared. Actually, to quote her, she said, I'm an atheist, y'all. Some might say, oops, she did it again. <laughs> All right, that's my, that's my last pop reference for the year, okay? <laughs> I had to get that out of the way early. The reason, the reason that she is now claiming to be an atheist is based on, she says, how her family has treated her. Because of the way they've treated her, she, she says there's no way there can be a God. There's just absolutely no way. And without commenting on how her family has treated her or how she has treated her family, I simply want to say that the statement she made publicly reveals that the foundations of her supposed belief in God were actually non-existent or superficial at best. The foundation for her belief in God was simply experiential or pragmatic or utilitarian. It was based on how it made her feel or what she could get out of the deal. Her worldview, the way she looked at the world, was not shaped by the God of the Bible, but instead by her unsatisfying, self-created version of a God that could not provide a stable enough foundation to weather the storms of life. The moment things got hard in her life, she abandoned God and, and pushed Him to the side. And you know, Britney Spears isn't the only person who does this. To abandon God for another God or, or for no God at all. But by abandoning God, let me ask this question, is that satisfying? Does it actually provide any kind of foundation upon which you could build your life? Does it answer the most foundational questions of meaning and purpose? Can it support the deepest questions of our soul, the desires of our soul, and the needs of our soul? Countless people, perhaps even some in this room, have embraced a, a worldview, again, an understanding of the world that is false and therefore provides a faulty foundation upon which you are building your life. Jesus in the Gospels told a parable about a, a fool who builds his house upon the sand, and, and when the storms come and the wind blows and the rain falls, that house cannot stand. It crumbles under the weight of any pressure. But he also said there was a wise man who decided to build his house upon the rock, a sure and a steady foundation. And when that same storm came and the winds blew with gale force and the rain fell with all of its weight, the house stood firm because its foundation was firm. The book of Genesis gives to us the foundational truths that actually undergird the entire reality that we experience. It undergirds our entire existence. It actually undergirds the entire universe. And as such, Genesis provides the foundation for our very existence. And if we are wise, the foundation upon which we will choose to build our lives Genesis, I believe, was written by Moses. Moses 
writes to God's people during a unique time in their history. They just come out of slavery in Egypt. You can imagine the scene. They're traveling through the wilderness on their way to the promised land. They were God's covenant people. They were trying to hold fast to the covenant promises that he had given to them. And in the midst of that, God speaks to his people and reveals to them the foundational truths of the universe. What God gives to his people through Moses in this book was intended to be the foundation of how humanity, and specifically God's people, were to think of themselves, were to think of sin, and were to think of their relationship to God. This book remains relevant for all people at all times. It's relevant for us today. If you're a Christian today, Without Genesis, here's what you need to understand, so much of the teaching in subsequent Scripture, the rest of the the books that follow as God progressively reveals more and more Scripture to us, it actually would be unclear or unintelligible without the book of Genesis. Genesis is the foundation for understanding and interpreting the Scriptures. In his commentary on Genesis 1 through 11, Kenneth Matthews says this, if we possessed a Bible without Genesis, we would have a house of cards without foundation or mortar. In other words, if if you understand Genesis, you are actually equipped to understand the whole of God's word, which is to be the ultimate foundation for your life and for mine. So throughout our study of this first chapter, I want you to become concerned, convinced, and convicted about these foundational truths upon which the rest of scriptures are built and depend so that they too can be the foundation upon which you can build and depend. Like I said, only two verses this afternoon, so let's just read them together. Most of you may not even need a Bible, you're so familiar with them, but look at it anyways. It says this, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. I simply want to give to you this afternoon three primary foundations upon which we should build our lives. So to put that more personally, the the way you can look at it, here you see three primary foundations upon which I should build my life. These are foundational truths for the Bible. They're foundational truths for humanity. They're foundational truths for us today. Foundation number one, believe in the reality of the divine origins or the truth of the divine origins. Verse 1, we actually already dive into controversy. And if you didn't know anything about the book of Genesis and the first chapter in particular, you should know this. It's surrounded with controversy. There have been debates throughout the ages of how to interpret so much of what's going on. And we'll get into some of that and some of it we won't get into. And some of you are going to be happy and some of you are going to be disappointed. But here we see right at the beginning that this is a book that there's a controversy steeped within. The first verse can be taken in in at least one of two ways. First, it can be taken kind of as a summary statement. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So summarizing then what's going to then be unfolded in verse 2 all the way through the end of the chapter. So in other words, the rest of the chapter is going to actually explain Verse 1, how did God do it? What exactly did he do? Verse 1 could possibly be taken as a summary, and that would mean that verse 2 simply describes the starting point of the story with a planet that's already present, but it is found in a kind of negative state. This is not to say, people who hold this view, um, is not to say that God did not create the world, but that this event doesn't describe the creation out of nothing event. Create in this context could be simply taken to mean um, what is disordered and needs to be ordered. Heaven and earth don't necessarily describe the entire universe in this view, but rather specifically an organized universe. 
I think there's actually a, a better option. There's good people who hold that view. A lot of people hold that view. But I think the better option is the traditional understanding of these two verses. It seems best to take this as God's first creative act Verse 1, not being a summary statement, but instead the actual initial act of creation, create in this sense, means that he is, he is not bringing order per se, but that he is bringing or describing divine origins. He is describing to us the beginning of the beginning, the beginning of all things. Before this, there is nothing but God, but here and now in this moment, God is creating time, he is creating space, he is creating matter, and he is creating it ex nihilo, as the Latin says, out of nothing. And if that's the case, which I, I think it is, then verse 2 would not be the starting point of this story, but it's simply the next event following the creation of time, space, and matter. Why does this second option make more sense? Here's why. It's so important to understand that this book is historical. There's historic elements that we're going to talk about. This book is true. There's narrative here that we need to unpack. This book is deeply theological, okay? It's not just history. This book is, is forming the theological foundations for God's people. There are depths and, and, and just unbelievable depths of theology in the book of Genesis that some of you, you've, you've never seen before, and that's okay. It's going to blow your mind the way that Moses wrote this book. Let me just say at the outset, Moses is a literary genius. He is stunningly brilliant. And on top of that, he is inspired by the very Spirit of God. This book is so rich, it is so deep, there are so many connections, and it is so fascinating, I think it's going to thrill our souls as we study through this book. But one of the things you need to understand about this book is that it is also polemical, okay? It's polemical. Now, that's an important word that you need to understand, and it simply means that, that this book is designed to argue against and present a better alternative to the existing competing worldviews of the day, okay? So it, it's, it's apologetic. And, and here's, here's how you have to think of this. Moses didn't write this book in a vacuum. He wrote it in a specific context. There, there, were, there were things going on around him that shaped the way he wrote, the language he used, the metaphors he chose but there were very specific worldviews that were dominant across the ancient Near Eastern world that everybody was aware of. And there were worldviews that conflicted. There were, there were origin stories, if you will, creation myths that actually conflicted with the truth and the reality of what God actually did. It's so important that when we come to a book like this that we don't simply approach it with our modern Western eyes, okay? We want to approach the book of Genesis and we want to take, you know, our, our enlightened scientific age and thrust questions upon it that this book isn't intending to answer. And instead, it's incumbent upon us as, as those who are studying this ancient book that's thousands of year old, years old to strap on our ancient Near Eastern sandals and start walking a mile in them and with them. So just for a moment, transport yourself back to the time of Moses and the Israelites who are wandering through the wilderness and they're, they're hearing for the first time the book of Genesis being read to them or, or taught to them. And ask this question, what were the common or competing beliefs of the day? What were they tempted to embrace this is a world that's not like our world. It is in some senses and it's not in others. We're a world and our culture is dominated by atheism. We want to reject the idea of God. The ancient world was a deeply religious world. There was no atheism in the ancient world. Everybody believed that, that everything you know, had some kind of start, starting point, that there was some kind of divine, supernatural world. Atheism wasn't the norm. Polytheism was the dominant theological worldview. Not, not no God or even one God, but many gods. And, and, and these gods, they took on aspects of the natural world. That's going to become very important to understand as we march through this first chapter of Genesis. The ancient world, they attached gods to aspects of the created world. 
So you had the God of the sun, right? If you went to, to Egypt, they would just be coming out of Egypt, keep this in mind, where they worshiped the sun god or the god of the moon or the god of the river. Fertility gods. They worshiped animals. You ever wonder why when Moses goes up to Mount Sinai to bring down the Ten Commandments, he comes down and he finds them abandoning the worship of God and instead worshiping a golden calf. Well, that was a foreign deity. They slipped back into a polytheistic worldview. Israel was constantly tempted to worship the gods of the nations. You just read through the Old Testament, and it's it's all over the place. Idolatry was was their greatest sin. They kept on trading God out and replacing God with the, the gods of the nations, idols made with human hands. And so what Moses is doing is so important. He's, he's looking at God's people and he's saying, listen, we don't worship gods made with human hands. We worship the God who made all things by the word of his power. It's a radically, radically different perspective on the world. And as he comes alongside the people of God, one of the things that he's pressing into them is that it, not only is it foolish to worship these other gods, to buy into these other religious systems. He's trying to tell them it's ridiculous in light of who their God is. It's as if Moses is saying, I know you admire the Mona Lisa, but I want to introduce you to Leonardo da Vinci. There were dominant pagan worldviews that consisted of a, a plethora of deities, and they had mythological stories to try to explain the existence of the world and thereby explain their own identity and purpose. Take one of the most common and widespread myths of the day um, in the Babylonian Empire. It's very fitting. It, it's called Enuma Elish. It's a very, very widespread uh, creation myth. It was the dominant one of the time, more than likely. And this is a fitting one to start with because uh, we just finished the book of Esther, which was situated in the Persian Empire, situated in the midst of, of Babylon. And you'll remember that both Esther and Mordecai, those weren't actually their Jewish names. You remember that? Those were their Babylonian names. Well, it's fascinating because Mordecai's name actually means a worshiper of Marduk, he was a, a given that name. I'm not suggesting that he was actually a worshiper of this God, but, but Marduk was actually the head God in the Babylonian worldview. That's how steep they were in these kind of worldviews. Even, even their names often resembled the gods that they were supposedly worshiping. In this creation story, Marduk is the God who created heavens and earth. But here's how it happens in this creation story. I'll just kind of really quickly sum it up. A Marduk goes to battle with the ocean goddess Tiamat. And he viciously kills Tiamat, the ocean god, and he splits her body in two. And out of one half of her body, he makes the sky or the heavens. And out of the other half of her body, he makes the earth, the land. Or you could look at the Canaanite creation myth, where Baal or Baal, as you read through that in the Bible, he is the storm god who controls lightning and rain and fertility. He goes to battle against Yam, the god of the sea or chaos. And in this creation myth, Baal defeats Yam for rulership or control of the universe. You see, one of the things you have to to see, the the common thread here is that in these creation myths, gods are in some eternal conflict, and the earth and humanity are born out of violence and and very bizarre situations. If you went to the the Egyptian creation myth, it gets even crazier, and and I'm not even going to explain it to you. It's so sick and twisted, but it's it's the, the earth and humanity is birthed out of the god's sexual immorality and wicked deviance. These are the common myths of of the day. And, 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 you know, we know that the Jews often lived amongst the Greco-Roman worldview, and you probably know enough of of the Roman or Greco-Roman pantheon of gods that were always battling one another and killing one another and sleeping with one another and all kinds of, again, immorality and wickedness and violence amongst the gods. 
And, and you run into the same problem with all these creation narratives. They don't go back far enough. They, they don't answer the questions that we, we, we want answered, that we need answered. You're like, okay, well, where, where did, where did the, the, the gods come from? Where did the, the matter, the earth come from? Where did they forge their weapons from? Where did they get all these things? They're just, they don't go back far enough. They don't go deep enough. They, they, they leave way more questions than they answer. They're insufficient. They're entertaining for sure, and it's kind of like watching a Marvel movie, which where do you think they got those ideas from? But it's like watching a Marvel movie, right? You're like, here's these gods of, of you know, the Marvel universe fighting each other, and you're like, okay, where'd they come from? Where'd their planets come from? And how is it possible that a bunch of human beings keep beating the gods? You see, it doesn't make sense. It almost seems in these creation myths like there are no gods at all. Hint, hint. Wink, wink. And you can see the polemic against idolatry in these seven, in the Hebrew, seven words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Moses is creating a crucial distinction between the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the gods of the nations, gods that the biblical authors tell us are no gods at all. God alone, Moses says, created the heavens and the earth, more literally, the, the sky and the land. But heaven and earth functions here as a literary device called a merism. And the idea is this, heaven and earth, it encapsulates everything in between. It's the totality or completeness of all that there is. That's, that's what he's suggesting to us. And later, biblical authors, they pick up on the significance of the creation account. For example, Jeremiah 10 verse 11 will be on the screen behind me. Jeremiah says, thus shall you say to them, the gods, lowercase g, these are the gods of the nations, who did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. In a similar way, the psalmist in Psalm 96 verse 5 says this, for all the gods, lowercase g gods, of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. You see, in these creation myths, these pagan myths, the gods of creation were depicted primarily as reordering unruly primeval matter, not creating matter. And Genesis 1 verse 1 not only identifies the creator, but also explains the origins of the world. God created all that exists in the universe. He is the only eternal reality. Everything else owes its existence to him. The single verse right here is not a summary statement of what is about to follow, but a foundational statement of the Bible, of the universe, and therefore our lives. The one and only eternal God, Yahweh, created all things out of nothing. End of sentence, period, full stop. That's it. This single verse tells us that Moses wants to push back further and deeper and to provide the only satisfying alternative. There is no fighting between the gods, no violence that results in creation, no horrifying sexual deviance that produces the world or humans, nor is there simply externally existing matter that exploded and somehow produced an organism, an amoeba, that just happened to evolve over time into a sentient conscious human being who is now reading these words and trying to understand the God of the universe. Genesis 1-1 gives to you and me the God who created the world, as Paul says in Acts chapter 17, and everything in it. Believe in the truth of divine origins. Everything starts from here because if this is the God of the universe, here's what this means for you and for me. It means we owe him our allegiance. 
It means we must know him. We must obey him. We must worship him. This is what this truth means. It means everything in our lives should be impacted by this God because he is the God who created all things, including us. Foundational truth number two, uh, behold the wisdom of the divine order. Now, we've already seen divine order, in a sense, in verse 1, in that God created a heavens and earth. There's already some structure in play here. Verse 2 tells us something fascinating. While there is some order, it is not yet fully or perfectly ordered. And again, keep in mind that this is polemical. The ancient views on the existence of the world attributed the origins of the Creator God to some pre-existing matter. Usually, if you read through the accounts, some kind of primeval waters. So when you read these words, the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The audience who heard this for the first time likely would have had in their mind these competing worldviews. And it makes Genesis then a unique narrative. This is not describing some pre-existing matter or the result of a pre-existing creation or world, I don't believe, that was somehow then corrupted by sin and evil and that is now going to be remade by God. There are people who believe this. And by the way, some good people believe this. That in effect, the beginning of Genesis is actually a, a starting the theme of redemption and God's actually rescuing a, a world that he had created that existed that somehow spiraled out of control and, and, and in a way that we're not told about. But again, I don't think that's the, the best way to read this. It, it seems best, again, to take verse 1 as an absolute statement of God's initial created work, and verse 2 then begins to describe now the state of his initial creation and, and what he's going to do with it. And you can have in your mind this image. He's, he's like an artist who creates a lump of clay and creates the tools and now he's going to take that and he's begin to, to shape it and to change it. And he's going to, to bring it, so to speak, to life. He's going to make something beautiful out of it. Some people, when they read the, the words, the five words that are combined here, the void, the darkness, the without form, the deep, and the waters, they, they, they describe this as, as the scene of chaos that existed at the beginning of all things. And I think that's actually a, a decent word to understand what's going on here so long as that word is, is rightly defined. Some people think this means chaos in the sense that there was somehow evil already present that God was going to overcome. I, again, I don't think that that's what's going on here. I think the idea of chaos leans into this idea of being disordered. It presents to us this idea of a, of, of a planet, so to speak, that is not yet habitable for humanity. It exists in its raw form, but, but nothing can yet live there. I mean, water covers this place. Darkness just encapsulates this place. It, it, nothing could survive. Humanity could not be placed here and live just yet. And so instead of this chaos, what God is going to do is he is going to begin to bring about the cosmos. He's going to overcome this situation as, as Psalm 95.5 says, by the way, the sea is his for he made it and his hands formed the dry land. He is going to begin to form it into something that is habitable. And not just habitable for vegetation, although it will be, or animals, though it will be, but primarily habitable for humanity. The pinnacle of God's creative activity it will be suitable for humanity to dwell upon and thrive in and flourish in. And we see a ray of hope in this second verse, the, the last half of it. It says the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. It's like God is there over this deep, dark, watery mass, and he's in control. That's what you have to see. He's about to take it, and he's going to do something phenomenal with it. 
One author says, from the original chaos, God would create a beautiful, fruitful paradise, an orderly cosmos habitable for humanity. And as we walk through the rest of this chapter, what we're going to see is that Moses emphasizes the order and organization of creation in some fascinating ways. Again, he, he's, he's not concerned about our modern enlightenment scientific questions. He's not attempting to answer them for us, much to our chagrin. In fact, he will not answer some of the questions that you, you most want him to. The details of, of when God did this and how exactly God did this. No, he, he wants us to pay particular attention, listen, to the beauty, the completion, and the perfection of all that God has made because the divine order is actually a reflection of the wisdom of God and of God himself. Numbers play a large part in how Moses is going to communicate this. Numbers, they play a large part in a lot of Jewish literature and in a lot of parts of the Bible. Numbers are very, very significant. Not all the time, but oftentimes they're very significant. And I said to you this earlier, Moses is a literary genius, okay? He is is a smart, smart guy, and he knows exactly what he's doing. I mean, he he was trained up in Egypt under the best teachers and tutors that a human being could possibly have at the time. He is a sharp guy. He, he knows math. He knows numbers. And, and best of all, he knows God. There are three numbers in particular that you're going to see throughout the, the first chapter. They're going to be repeated and they're going to be used to communicate some very important things. Uh, The number three is going to be used a handful of times. The number seven, some of you are going to know this, is the number for for completion or perfection. The number ten is going to be used repeatedly as well. And again, I believe this is intentional on the part of Moses. They represent perfection and completion. That's what these numbers represent in the ancient world. They point to the beauty and the wisdom of God and His creation. You see that the form of the literature is reflecting the perfection of what Moses is describing. He's trying to match his description to the beauty, the glory, and the grandeur of creation. And so you'll see in in this chapter, seven times he uses the phrase, let there be. Seven times he's going to say, and it was so. Seven times he's going to focus on this word, good. There are seven words in the first verse. There are 14 words, seven times two in the second verse in Hebrew. Again, this is, I think, all very strategic and intentional. It's these subtle ways that he is displaying the beauty and the wisdom of God. You say, so what? What does this mean? Like, why, why has he done this? What's his point? Listen, I think, I think this is the primary point. This is an invitation for you and for me, as much as it was for the first readers, to behold God. To be amazed by the, the, the power of God, by the wisdom of God, by the grandeur of God. You see, intellectual belief in God is not enough. It's not enough to just know God exists. That's only the starting point to believe that there is one divine being who created everything. That's the place you must start, but you cannot stay there. Belief must begin to manifest itself in beholding. Something has to happen in your heart. You have to be caught off guard by this God. We're called in Psalm 19, as we saw a few weeks back, to to behold his glory in creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. Bruce Walke, in his commentary, he says this. Put it up on the screen behind me. He says this. He says, his creation reveals his immeasurable power and might, his bewildering imagination and wisdom, his immortality and transcendence, ultimately leaving the finite mortal in mystery. He's here, let me just paraphrase. It blows our mind. It's like when we truly see who this God is, we take a step back and we're like, this God is like nothing and no one else I I could possibly even fathom. He's so great. 
He's so wonderful. He's so powerful. He's so wise. Everything he does, Moses is saying, is absolutely perfect. It's matchless in wonder. And it should cause you to take a step back and be breathless. I mean, Romans 1 tells us that, that it's so clear that God exists that, that just creation tells us that every human being is without an excuse. We'll all stand before God and nobody will be able to say, I didn't know you existed. God will say, look at how I put myself on display. I like what Greg Beale says. Greg Beale says this, God has made humans to reflect him, but if they do not commit themselves to him, they will not reflect him but something else. We either, he says, reflect the creator or something in creation. In other words, let me frame it like this. It's our nature to bear the image of something. If we don't bear the image of God, then we'll bear the image of idols. If it's not the image of the creator, then we will bear the image of creation. We become like that which we behold. And when we worship false gods, we become like them. So here's some application, okay? Our worship of money causes us, listen, to become stingy and greedy. Think about how what you behold determines what you become. Listen, our worship of money makes us greedy and stingy. Our worship of power, listen, makes us harsh and demanding. Our worship of approval makes us anxious and fearful. Our worship of success makes us busy and restless. The more, listen, we avert our gaze from the true God and chase these idols, the more ungodly and like them we become. And do you see this, Christian, in your own life? Do you see the tendency to start chasing idols, to chase other gods? And do you see how it begins to shape uh, your loves, your desires, your affections? Do you see how it starts to change your very personality? How, how it rattles you in ways that you didn't expect? How, how you start becoming a different person as certain things take over your mind and your heart and your hands find their grip around them? What false gods do you find yourself chasing? And if you're a Christ follower in here today, let me ask you this. How do you see yourself becoming like them instead of like Christ? Kenneth Matthews, I quoted him already in his commentary, says this. The opening section of Genesis introduces, this is so helpful because, listen, the book of Genesis reorients our gaze. Listen, away from idols, listen to this. The opening section of Genesis introduces us to the Creator. He is the main character of the book, even all scripture. The creation account is theocentric, not creature-centered. Its purpose is to glorify the creator by magnifying him through the majesty of the created order. This is so helpful. Listen, because we begin, and don't we? We begin, we learn to live our lives as if everything was centered around us. And all it does is lead to our own destruction, Many believe, few behold. Beholding means you gladly and willingly recognize that this world and your life are not ultimately or primarily about you, but about Him. Listen, I just, can I just tell you that everything begins to change when you take your eyes off of yourself and put them on God. Everything begins to change when you become consumed with God instead of being consumed with yourself. Everything begins to change when you put your hope in things above, not in things below. Everything changes. Your contentment changes. Your anxiety changes. Your fear changes. Your desires change. Everything about you changes when you encounter the true creator of the universe and you fix your gaze on him. If you truly believe, if you truly behold, then you must truly bow. Foundation three, bow to the majesty of the divine objective. We see at the end of verse two that the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. God is watching over and he is working in his world. And this tells us, listen, in a very subtle way, he, he has a purpose in mind here. There is a goal and an objective that he and he alone is going to accomplish with his creation. So he looks out at his, his creation canvas, and as we're going to see in the rest of this chapter, he's going to begin to make this world a habitable dwelling place for his people. What was, 
without form and void, we're going to watch God begin to shape and craft and fill. It will be formed to His exact specifications and be filled with all that is necessary for life to flourish. We're going to see some important themes begin to emerge here that help us grasp this divine objective and call us to bow in total surrender. I want to give you two themes as we draw our time to a close, two themes that are going to emerge in this first chapter. We get a a taste of them here, but I want to pull them to the forefront of your mind so that they begin to make sense as we move through this chapter and then the rest of the book of Genesis. First, we're going to see the theme of temple emerge. Temple. So the way that Genesis 1 is crafted is almost, you can imagine, like a blueprint for a house or a temple. It's what you would expect when you were building a house or a temple that that somebody was going to dwell in. There's order, there's structure, there's intentionality, and it is designed to be a dwelling. Scholars have noted that God has created the universe as if it was a cosmic temple. There's going to be so much more to come on this particular theme, but the structure and the language is going to be picked up by Moses in, in later parts of the Scripture to begin to describe both the temple and the tabernacle. In other words, the temple and tabernacle are intended to be modeled after God's creative work at the very beginning. They point you back. You say, why is this so significant? Here's why. Because if you understand the temple, then you actually understand God's divine objective for humanity. If you can see that in the temple, the primary purpose was was the temple was where the presence of God came to dwell with man. The temple is the place in the Old Testament where heaven and earth meet. The temple is the place in the Old Testament where humanity can actually begin to approach God in some sort of way, begin to come into His presence, to know His presence, and enjoy His presence. And so you see, if you can grasp that here, what you're going to see is this, that this whole universe, listen, is like a cosmic temple in which God, listen, God is creating a space not only for humanity to dwell, but for God to dwell with humanity. You see, God has created all things, and specifically, He's created you and me as human beings, listen, so that we might actually have a special, personal, intimate relationship with Him. He's designed everything to put this reality on display. It tells us that His his divine objective is that, listen, that you and I might know Him and thereby know what it means to truly live this life. From the beginning, God was creating a habitable dwelling place for humanity and a place where he would come and dwell with his people. And in this sense, listen, the whole earth is the land upon which God intended to dwell with his people. Remember, the people receiving this letter were the Jews who were going towards the promised land. But even that promise that was made to Abraham that God's people would dwell with God and his presence would come and dwell with them in the land, it points back to a time when God originally created all things like a temple. The earth, the land, was the place where his people would dwell with him. His glory would cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Aside from the temple, the overarching theme of the Bible is God's kingship in his coming king, kingdom, excuse me. And in the beginning of the Bible, it teaches us this, that God is creator and therefore God is king of creation. This creation is the realm over which he sovereignly rules. Those other gods who, who are ruling, so to speak, over selective regions or selective things, uh, they were nothing compared to this God. This is the God who is sovereign over all creation. He is the king to which every one and everything must bow. And we see this because God commands and creation hears his voice and listens. I want to just dip my toes into chapter 3 just for a minute. Look at the beginning. Just the first three words. And God said, not chapter 3, sorry, verse 3. I love hearing the pages though. That's fantastic. 
But verse three, and God said, and then what we're gonna say, and God said over and over and over, here is God's uninhabitable creation, all of a sudden listening to the command of his voice and falling immediately in line to do exactly what God has said. That's kingship. That's rulership. It's supremacy. It's authority. Hebrews 11 verse 3 says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. This is God's world-shaping word, okay? That's what we see here. God's world-shaping word. His word is intended to shape our perspective on the world because his word is the very thing that shaped the world. This book that we have in front of us, listen, church, this is awesome. This book right here is a world-defining word. This book is the word of the king and creator of the universe. Listen, it defines who we are. We're going to see this in this chapter. It defines what this place is, why we're here, where it came from, what's wrong with it, and how it's all going to conclude in the end. All from this word. It must rule us because it is the decree of the king. So here's my question for you. Is God's word ruling you today? Is God ruling you through his word today? Let me add that when God creates humanity, he says this, let us make man in our own image. That plural language that you hear there, that's often referred to as a plural of majesty, a royal we, so to speak. It's the way that kings spoke, and it's true that this is in part what this is communicating. God is the majestic king of the universe. He is royalty. He is royalty of royalty. But then this, listen, we also, we also get a glimpse of the Trinity. Now, I don't think Moses quite understood what he was writing, but we can look back through the New Testament eyes, and we can see that the New Testament authors clearly saw in the words of Moses that God was actually presenting a vision of who he is in his fullness. The king is three in one. He is God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Son. We've seen the Father speaking. We've seen the Spirit hovering over the water, but God's word is present And it is not coincidental that Jesus, the Son of God, is identified as the divine incarnate Word of God. John picks this up. We read this already in John chapter 1, but this is so astounding. I just want to show you again the, the first three verses. Jesus, listen church, Jesus was there at creation. John 1 verse 1 through 3 tells us, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Paul says in Colossians 1, 15 and 17, he, speaking of Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him and he is before all things and all things hold together in him church Jesus was there Jesus was active in the creation account and right now Jesus Christ is holding all things together by the word of his power nothing exists here right now apart from the power of the incarnate word of God Jesus Christ that's how awesome our God is But it goes deeper than that. It goes back further than that. You thought Genesis 1 was the beginning. No, you thought John 1 was the beginning. No, somewhere deep in the hidden counsels of the triune God, guess what? God had a divine objective, and he had you and me at the center of it. London Bridge. That's the code word for the the plan that was devised 50 years ago for when the queen died. 50 years ago, they made a plan. 50 years. What do we do when the queen dies? I don't know what they do, but here's what they call it, London Bridge. The first call that was made the moment the queen died, the message that came through, London Bridge has fallen. 
50-year-old plan. Can you believe that? Well, God has had an eternal plan. Codename redemption. <laughs> because humanity has fallen. And so we're going to see this. And we're going to explore the depths of this. But God knew what he created was going to be so good. And that humanity was going to mess it all up. He knew that before the foundation of the world, the scripture says. He, 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 he designed the plan of redemption. He designed to save you from your sin before the foundation of the earth, the scripture says. Before anything was spoken into existence, God said this, I know what's going to happen. I'm in charge of it all. I'm sovereign over the whole thing. And I am going to go and I'm going to rescue those people who turn their back on me. And I'm going to actually become one of them to do it. I'm going to take on flesh and I'm going to suffer in their place. And I'm going to hang on a cross and I'm going to pay the penalty for sin. But I'm going to rise victoriously from the grave so that all who put their faith and trust in me can be raised, listen, to new life. They can become a new creation. And one day, here's the awesome thing, one day I'm going to recreate the entire cosmos through the power and blood of Jesus Christ plan of redemption. You see, in the beginning implies that there is an ending. And Pastor Brian mentioned this verse last week, but it's so good I have to say it again. Isaiah 46.10, God is the one declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purposes. You see, in the beginning teaches us that God started with a purpose. The divine objective will one day be fully realized. It will be realized in the fullness of the new creation, the scriptures say, when God will bring about a new heaven and a new earth, which is described in the book of Revelation as both a cosmic temple and an everlasting kingdom, where all his people through the ages will bow to him and worship him forever. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. These are the foundations upon which we should build our lives. May we joyfully believe, behold, and bow now that we might know, enjoy, and glorify him forever. Let's pray.